If you go ahead and turn to Luke chapter 1, I might sound somewhat different this morning. I've got a little bit of a cold. So if you'd imagine me as a, as a younger person, that would help me, um, encourage me emotionally. Uh, we're in Luke chapter 1. We're going to be thinking through the verses 26 through 38. Uh, it's a lot of territory for us to cover. Uh, normally we try not to go that far because there's so much to move through, but it's really a conversation. And it's a conversation that changed really the world in anticipation of something that would make its mark for all of history. Now, when I was younger and I was in seventh grade, I thought I was going to make a mark in history. Uh, you see, I was in a competition, uh, particularly the aggressive and often dangerous game called wiffle ball. Uh, those of you who've never played wiffle ball, um, I consider myself somewhat of a pro. If there was a pro league, seventh grade, I would have been in it. Uh, we were playing in a schoolyard, and up on the side of the building, if you hit it above the certain windows, this row of windows, it was a home run. And by the end of our league, we had an eight-week league, I had 32 home runs. Yeah, you should be impressed. Yeah, we might just pause there, but let's move on. I found out because I was in such a lead, I was out playing basketball, and somebody ran across the schoolyard and told me of an individual who had 31 home runs and he was up to bat. Well, clearly that can't stand. I ran across the schoolyard just to see this individual hit a home run. He had tied me. In seventh grade, a tie is like a loss. Can't be tied. So I said to somebody who was on one of the teams, can I bat for you? Because I know they were coming up. We had about five minutes left in the break. I stood at the plate. The guy pitched one that was hard and outside. I let it go. I had that kind of an eye. The next one, he laid it across the plate. I pasted that thing up over where the windows are. Home run, 33 home runs. I jogged around like a giant peacock around the plates, around the bases, came in and just walked into the building. Nothing needed to be said. I was the home run champion. You know, I look back at that. At the time, I thought it was amazing. I mean, it was right up there with, you know, a, a swimmer winning Olympics. You know, Mark Spitz, you know, just in blazing paths in the pool. Or maybe like a, a, a Terry Bradshaw throwing that, that pass to, to Lynn Swan or to Stallworth against the Rams in the 1980s Super Bowl. I was... I was living the dream. No one remembers that, except for me. No one is sitting around in their living room, let me tell you about a guy I knew. You want to talk about wiffle ball? No one says that. Matter of fact, isn't that how it is in life? Maybe you've won an award. It was a big deal when you won it. Now you can't find the trophy. Probably throwing it out you have any years under your belt. You've gotten certificates, diplomas. I bet most of you don't have any idea where your high school diploma is. Maybe some type of medallion you won. Um, could be long gone. 
In other words, there are moments in which we make an imprint, but it only lasts so long because that exact moment only has so much value. Think about this. If I asked you who won the Super Bowl 10 years ago, what would you say? Who was the most valuable player? You wouldn't be able to pull that up. It was great in the moment, but not a big deal now. Yet the event that we're going to read about not only was an amazing moment at the time, this announcement of the birth of Christ reshapes history. Matter of fact, more than reshapes history, it actually changed the lives we live. This thing had so much power, the announcement and then birth of Christ. Do you realize that uh, every day you swim in the pool of a culture that's been affected by it? If you think about it, um, matter of fact, one year before Christ was born, this is a letter that was written from an individual by the name of Hilarion. He was in Rome at the time, and he was writing to his pregnant wife. Excuse me, he was in Alexandria, Egypt. His wife was in Rome, and he writes to her and says this, and it gives you a picture of the culture of the day. It's the contrast between his hope for his son and his callous relationship and understanding of what it might be if it's a daughter that is born from his pregnant wife. Hilarion wrote, know that I'm still in Alexandria. Do not worry if they all come back and I shall remain in Alexander. Alexandria. Excuse me. I ask and beg you to take good care of our baby's son. As soon as I receive payment, I shall send it to you. If you are delivered a child before I come home, if it is a boy, keep it. If it is a girl, discard it. You sent me word, don't forget me. How can I forget you? I beg you not to worry. That is the understanding of the worth and value of a child in 1 BC. That idea of discard it had an understanding of, as Plato in his Republic talks about, disposing of children in secret and exposing them to the elements. Meaning that if a child is born and it's a girl... Feel free to throw the baby down a well, throw it in the river, leave it in the field. That was the understanding of human life. Matter of fact, Aristotle in 384 to 322 lived during that time, BC, said, for that some should rule and others be ruled as a thing, not only necessary, but expedient. From the hour of their birth, some are marked for subjection and others for rule. It was a perfect application before ever evolution was ever mentioned. Some people rule, some people serve. That's just the way it is. And more than that, if we think about this, Larry Sidertop in his book, Inventing the Individual, says that the way the world thought before Christ, at the core of ancient thinking was the assumption of natural inequality. Matter of fact, we even look at our calendars as it relates to the birth of Jesus Christ. A.D. stands for the Latin, in the year of our Lord, and B.C. stands for before Christ. A writer said the impact of Jesus on the constitutions of the Western world, along with the civil codes and criminal procedures that are based on the Ten Commandments, have changed the way we see life and law and order. Christianity was the essential ingredient that formed the basis of modern democracy. In other words, 
You live in a country that Pastor Zach talked about is not a monarchy, primarily because the announcement that we're going to consider this morning happened and Jesus Christ was born. Finally, you might think that, well, maybe that's just ancient times. Maybe Jesus' birth wasn't that big of a deal. Maybe that's just the way things progress. People get better. They realize their error. So if we had that letter by Hilarion in 1 BC, by the time we arrive in 251, a bishop in Rome writes to another in Antioch. Now remember, this is the same Rome that Hilarion would have been writing from and that culture was so potently being shaped by. He writes to another bishop pointing out that more than 1,500 widows and distressed persons we're in care of the local congregation in Rome. There, there was a local congregation in Rome and the surrounding areas of about 30,000 Christians. And they were taking care of people that were sick, in need, had a relative or family member who provided who were passed away, or a child that had been left on an open windowsill to die, that a Christian took that baby in and raised that child. So much so that there was, as I said, 1,500 people being cared for by the church in Rome. Matter of fact, Rodney Stark says that Christianity revitalized the life of Greco-Roman cities by providing new norms, new kinds of social relationships, able to cope with many urgent urban problems. In other words, the church effectively nursed the cities. It was the family environment in the church that absorbed the dysfunction of the society. That's a little over 200 years after the birth of Christ. What is so potent that could change a culture like that? It was the birth of Jesus Christ. And this morning, we're going to consider what that looked like. A conversation between a girl, could be as young as 12 years old, most likely 13, maybe 14. And an angel that has existed before this world was created, as best that we can tell. A conversation that you're going to be able to listen in on because Luke is writing this so you can have a certainty of what you believe is true. He's writing to Theophilus, says that in verse 4. And we're listening in and seeing the evidence and exploring the truth so that our trust in God, our worship of the Savior of the world can grow and our doubts can fall behind the wayside. Look over in Luke chapter 1, 26 through 38. That's where we're going to be reading. It's a long stretch, but it's a a conversation between two people. It says this in verse 26 as it starts. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one. The Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. 
and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom, there'll be no end. And Mary said to the angel, how will this be since I'm a virgin? The angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has conceived a son, and this is the sixth month with her, who was called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am a servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. If you have a teaching guide in front of you, we're going to think through the mission of Gabriel, the surprise of Mary, the message of Gabriel, the question from Mary, the response of Gabriel, and the obedience of Mary. Let's start off as we think about this, the mission of Gabriel. What mission was he on? It says there the sixth month, Elizabeth's pregnancy. In verse 24 of this passage, remember that Elizabeth the wife of Zechariah, who was going to be having John the Baptist, had kept her pregnancy secret for five months. So no one knew about this. So Mary, who was a cousin, when she heard this, it would have been startling. The idea that he comes there and he says that he was sent from God to a city in Galilee named Nazareth, and the name, name Angel the name of the angel is Gabriel. That reminds us of the interaction that happened just previously between Zechariah and the angel. Gabriel was the angel that we saw earlier. No angelic visit, we said, in over 400 years. And Gabriel shows up, and now within six months, we have two. This tells you this is significant. It's an indication that God is doing something profound as you would read this, as Theophilus would read this, that God is sanctioning this. Only two angels are mentioned, we said last week, Michael and Gabriel in the New Testament and the Old. The last time we saw Gabriel was his message to Daniel in Daniel eight fifteen through 17. That's the last time we heard from him until he appears in the temple to Zechariah. And now we see him show him again. And he said in verse 19, I am Gabriel and stand in the presence of God. And so when he shows up, the writer should naturally convey, the writer is conveying to us, there's something unusual happening here. There's something in which God is uniquely doing because angelic visitations were very rare in the Jewish mindset and understanding. Now it says to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, one of the things we said is that Luke is writing with precision. Why does he say Galilee named Nazareth? I think it's because if he just said Nazareth, the people reading this wouldn't really understand where it was. So he says Galilee, so you have a region, and now you have Nazareth, the local city, the local town. You really could say a village. Now, Nazareth not only was a small town, it was in Galilee. It was a hick area. It was like what we would say the country today. Matter of fact, from this time, there was probably about 1,600 to 2,000 residents. Not many people there at all. Matter of fact, our average high school in our county has more students that go to school than Nazareth would have occupied citizens. 
South Forsyth has 2,252. Lambert, 2,932. Central, 2,585. Denmark, 2,272. Think about it. Nazareth has less people living in it than our high school does. It was an out-of-the-way place. It was a no-name place. Matter of fact, I was just at uh, Bucky's on Saturday. If you've ever ventured into Bucky's on a Saturday... Uh, I pity you. Do you know on an average Saturday in Bucky's down off 75, they get 11,000 people. 11,000 people. If you're interested what the tribulation might look like, it is Bucky's on a Saturday. Now, if we think about this, that this angel comes to a city of Galilee named Nazareth. It is an out-of-the-way place. What is going on here? I think this is written, and I think God's plan is not merely for you to understand how many people were in Nazareth, but start to contrast the difference between this and the last time Gabriel visited. It was in the temple. It was during his priestly function. It was a special time in which people were praying, and now we shift stories. We're in a hick town that no one cares about, an insignificant place, and yet has this powerful angelic visitation. And he goes on. He says, he appeared to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph. Now, when you just read this, he doesn't even say her name at this point. Uh, These details are very, very important because it's setting up a drama. The only thing he mentions that she is a virgin because that's incredibly important. Matter of fact, Mary, we never even find out her last name. Zachariah and Elizabeth, from the last, we know that they were blameless. They were righteous. He was a priest. She was in the line of Aaron. We have all this information and all we have here is to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph. I'd propose to you, this is the start of the shifting of the worldview of people at this time, that there are no nobodies in this world. There are no places that are places that God himself would go. There are no places that angels don't have the time to visit. All of this is starting to communicate. This is a different belief system. The gods of these days would use people like puppets. Their understanding of the Greco-Roman world and the deities, that they were capricious, they were angry, they were fits of rage, they had no value for life. And at the front of this story, we see the mission of Gabriel is going to this out-of-the-way place to a a no-name girl. And we have the name now of a guy whose name was Joseph of the house of David. Ah, now we're putting some meat on the bones in the story. If you're a Jewish person and you see of the house of David, you all of a sudden start thinking to yourself a grander theme than just this story. But we've got to ask ourselves a question really quick. If she's a virgin and Jesus is going to be born of a virgin birth, what significance is the house of David? We'll fill in the blanks as we go, but I think this is relating to the legally binding relationship 
between Joseph and David. Because if you remember, in the virgin birth, Joseph's blood does not transfer to Jesus Christ. But he says this because the average Jew would want to make sure that there was a line of David involved here. And why is that? Well, it's because 2 Samuel 7, 12 through 14 says this. And God said to David, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Now, that's speaking of Solomon, but when he says establish his home forever, he's saying there's one to come whose reign will never end. So he's not just speaking of Solomon, but he's also speaking of the offspring that was foretold in Genesis 3.15. Remember when Adam and Eve fell, God said, I'll send an offspring. And we have this thread that runs through the Old Testament of someone who's going to come and do something about their disconnect with God, that their sinful relationships and how that has driven a wedge between them and God. Matter of fact, we see in Psalm 89, God reiterates this. He said, I will not violate my covenant or alter my word that went forth from my lips. Once for all, I have sworn by my holiness, I will not lie to David. His offspring shall endure forever. His throne as long as the sun before me, like the moon, it shall be established forever. A faithful witness in the skies. In other words, to make sure you understand this and your confidence is high. When you get up in the morning and you see the sun, may that remind you of the promise I've given to David. When you're at night and you see the moon, let that remind you I've given a promise to David. In other words, God imprinted on nature the representation in the sun and the moon of his covenant with David that there'll be a throne established forever. And so when he says of the house of David, that begins to change everything. And it says there, next, and the virgin's name was Mary. Mentions Joseph first, because the man in the relationship, that was the proper way to do it. And the virgin's name was Mary. Like I said, there's only two things that are mentioned about Mary. Her name, first name, and her physical condition. Matter of fact, that word virgin there, Parthenos, is only and ever used as it relates to a girl who's never had a masculine relationship. He cements this, always referring to a virgin. Now, how do we know that they were of this age? Well, we know that they had to be at least uh, 12 years old because the law in Rome said a girl could not marry before 12. Now, remember, you hear that and cringe. I hear that and cringe. I've got girls. Remember, This is not the dating game that we have in Western civilization. It's not a child trying to figure this out. This is a father and a mother who are curating the future spouse. They know the family. They're connected with the family. And as soon as a child is able to have children, the idea is they should start. Why? Because they're image bearers. Because it's a good thing to have children. And so when we hear that age, be careful that you don't look through the lens of our society 
But remember, in their society, when a girl was betrothed, as it says, betrothed to the, to the young man, he would then go away and prepare a house. Very often, he would build onto his own house with his own family. And then when they were during this betrothal period, the only thing that could break that period was a, a formalized divorce or death. Because it was as if they were legally married, but they had not come together yet in an intimate way. And then as they would marry, they would live off the side of the house so they'd have the influence of his father and the family in general. So this isn't just kids getting married. This is something that was created to create stability in the Jewish culture, culture very different in the surrounding culture. It says her name is Mary or Miriam is the formal name. It means exalted one. And notice now though, if we have this house of David and yet Joseph is not going to be a part of the bloodline, where do we get the, the oomph, the power that this is the child that's coming from David? Look over in Luke chapter 3, verses 23 through 38. This is the line of Mary. And notice within there in verse 31 that she stands in the line coming from the son of David in verse 31. So she does have royal blood. He legally binding is in a royal procession of the house of David, but she has the bloodline, which again is important because if you don't have the bloodline, you can't be qualified to be the Messiah. For example... Uh, in 2018, when we went to Israel, I was standing outside of the Wailing Wall and I got in conversation with a shopkeeper. And I said, I'm curious, who do you think Jesus Christ is? And he looked at me and I said, okay, was. Because he looked at me with a very, and he said, he was just one of the many religious people that have come through. He was a fake. He was a phony. So I said, have you looked into this? And he said, absolutely, we all know what's to be true. And I said, how is it that you're going to determine the next Messiah? Because you're looking for a Messiah. He says, absolutely, we're looking for the Messiah every day. We pray for the Messiah. We hope to see the Messiah. And I said, now you know you have to align up Messiah with the lineage of David. He said, absolutely, that's, that's what we would absolutely do. And I said, well, in AD 70... The genealogical records that were stored in the temple were burned. And he looked at me in a, with a funny look. And I said, you know that you have no way to determine if Messiah would come tomorrow, let's say. You could never determine if he is from the house of David. And he gave me this look like I just punched him in the jaw. And I said, here's the thing. You've got to find a Messiah before the 70 AD or you'll never find Messiah. And I said, I encourage you to re-examine the life of Christ. And he, you know what he said to me then? He said, well, he was from Nazareth. I said, don't you know he was born in Bethlehem? In other words, he, he was, and he had never, ever heard that, that he was born in Bethlehem. This guy lives in Israel. Never heard that. In other words, Luke is writing this with such precision to line up all of the meta story of everything they were looking for in the Old Testament 
and what they were looking forward to in the coming of Messiah and a crass commercial message. If you're interested in going to Israel, we'll be visiting sites in which you'll see this in the fall, have more information out in the lobby. That's the end of the commercial. Now we go to verse 29. The surprise of Mary. The angel enters the home. Uh, Mary's at home by herself. Remember the contrast here is not the temple, not a special ceremony. Mary's just at her home. The angel has greeted her and says greetings. Effectively, Cairo, it's effectively a good day. Hello, how are you? Now imagine this, it's, it's, it's mind-blowing. She's in there doing something, no one's around. The angel enters. Hello. Favored one. What's interesting about this expression, favored one, it's in the perfect passive. Now, what in the world does that mean? It's, it's an, um, a verb, and it's also a, a, as adjective characteristics, the participle. So the perfect passive has the idea of it. It's an action completed in the past. That's the perfect. And the passive means that the person receiving it is passive. They've not done anything to get it. So when he says here, the verb, karatu, favored one, there's nothing that Mary did to receive the favor. In other words, she didn't perform something so that God is now rewarding her. And she was a recipient of this, and it's been completed in the past. Now, what's the big deal here? What you're going to see is maybe you have relatives or friends. I know I have relatives that are of the Roman Catholic faith. And they think that Mary was of such grace, she was full of grace, it was she was immaculately conceived. When you hear the term immaculate conception, we think that refers to Christ. But in Roman Catholic theology, it refers to Mary's conception. She was born immaculately, and that gave her the ability to then have Christ. In other words, it seems as if she is the one who is uh, the most spiritual person who has ever lived in Roman Catholic theology. Very quickly, we're going to talk about this more, but look in Luke chapter 1, 46 and 47. After she realizes what is going on in the story with Elizabeth and with Zachariah, in her story, she begins to pronounce the Magnificat. If you remember the story, she begins to worship the Lord. Notice what she says in verses 46 and 47. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. In other words, Mary was surprised because the Savior was going to save her. Because God was going to do something and she was going to be a part of it. And she was surprised because she needed a Savior and she was blown away by the grace of God. That's the surprise of Mary. That's why she was greatly troubled. That's why she wondered and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. Is this something of judgment? What exactly is this? And we've talked about this in previous weeks. She tried to discern. She began to do a self-evaluation because she knew she needed a savior. 
So that was the surprise of Mary. Now look at the message of Gabriel in verse 30 through 33. The message of Gabriel. He said, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. Again, this idea of favor. We want to linger on this. I've already mentioned the Roman Catholic belief, but it's very, very important. He said, do not be afraid. Phobio is the word that speaks of afraid, meaning that we take our word phobia from that. Don't be afraid. You have found favor with God. Again, and favor here is the root word for grace. You have found grace with God. As I mentioned, the Immaculate Conception refers to the Blessed Virgin Mary, conceived out from and not having any original sin from Adam and Eve. Do you know when that was pronounced? You would think that if that's true, you would think that'd be relatively soon, after the birth of Christ. You would think that that would be part of something that was part of the early councils, maybe in the 300s, 400s, certainly. Certainly not later than the 700s that people would have understood the Immaculate Conception. But actually, Pope Pius IX formally defined the dogma of the Immaculate Conception in an encyclical called Ephalibus Deus on December 8, 1854. 1854. Up until for over 1800 years, no one taught formally in the church that Mary was immaculately conceived. Nobody. Matter of fact, four years after this occurred, the church, even the Roman Catholic Church was struggling with this until... On March 25th, 1858, there was a 14-year-old girl named Bernadette. She was in Lourdes in France. She was in a, a grotto or a cave. And she would regularly go there. She was sickly. She was been cast out of society. And she would spend time in this cave. And she would have visitations from celestial beings. And one day, she asked the celestial being, ask her who she was. And the reply back to her is, I am the Immaculate Conception. And from that point on, this idea of the Immaculate Conception took off. Remember what Paul says to the people of Galatia. Be wary even if an angel appears to you. The gospel from this moment began to be perverted within the Roman Catholic Church because they believe you pray to Mary. And that Mary, from her good works, from her merit, she will provide for you treasure that she's received from Christ. But Mary functionally became an intercessor for people. Do you see how that works? In 1 Timothy 4.1, Paul mentions doctrines of demons. That, my friend, is a doctrine of demons. The message of Gabriel has nothing to do with Mary becoming this intercessor. The message of Gabriel has everything to do with Christ, the intercessor for all people, all times, all places. That if you put your trust in him, you can have a relationship with Christ. And your relationship with Christ, if you've trusted him, your sins are forgiven. You don't have to keep up with the sacramental system of the Roman Catholic Church. Why do I labor this point? 
I labor the point because from this text, they gain that doctrinal framework that you need to make sure you're in the text and you oppose that. It's not that we go, well, let's not stand against that. Let's not make that a big deal. Make it a big deal. The souls of people are on the line. The enemy thought this enough to be able to weasel this into the church so he could twist people's minds from seeing Christ as the central figure to now also Mary. So much so that when a Catholic prays, what is the first thing they say? Hail Mary, full of grace. And that, my friends, is idolatry. I thought we could make a run through this passage, but as the band is coming up, there's no way we can. We almost made it to 33. But I would encourage you, in the time we have before next week, would you do me a favor? Would you evaluate the story between Zechariah and Elizabeth? Notice the circumstance. A priest in the temple. It would make perfect sense that something special would happen there. Praying as the people are praying outside. Zechariah, when he's given the message of Gabriel, says, how can this possibly be? The situation's perfect. He should absolutely believe it. As we said last week, he doesn't. And he's made so he can't talk and he can't hear. In other words, he did everything necessary to place his faith in the message. In this situation, we have a girl who has no right to believe that God's going to do anything in her life. Shows up in an out-of-way place with a message that is profound. And as we'll see next week, she believes. In other words, you don't need to understand everything about the plan of God to have faith in the plan of God. And those of you who are struggling here this morning with anger or envy or bitterness or greed or pornography, you don't need to have some trick or technique or personal discipline. What you need to see is that God is greater. So you don't need to vent your anger on that spouse, on that child. You don't need that one other thing that fuels your envy and your greed. You don't need that illicit image to find satisfaction. He's given you Christ. And if you're here this morning and you say, I just, I'm lost in this, we'd love to help you. We'd love to help point you to Christ as this message is all about because it reshaped all of society. And if you're here as a follower of Jesus Christ, be encouraged. The story that you have before you is a story that God cares for everyone, even the people in society that have been cast away. We have a magnificent Savior. We have a fantastic God. We have a Savior that we can worship together. So before we sing, let's worship him in prayer. Lord, we are so thankful for your kindness to us, your grace, the same grace that you determined on Mary flows in and toward those who trust in you today. That blows our mind. Your grace and mercy, your forbearance, your patience, your kindness overwhelms us. Help it overwhelm us to the point of changing us. As we meditate on this truth, It reshapes the way we see the world, the way we see other people. It makes much of you and puts us in a proper place to be able to walk in your grace in a way 
that we can feel and we can sense and we can know. Use us in this world to change this world because you've changed us. And any that are in this place who've never trusted in you, arrest them, convict them with the understanding that there is no other way. And you have done everything necessary to show that. All the evidence we need is before us. Thank you for your greatness. Thank you for your kindness in our life, for making much of Jesus. And that is where our hope lays. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.